prophet. The dictionary defines this as one who delivers divine messages or who foretells the future. Rage, a useful and necessary tool for revolution. Put these two together and you'll find a common theme for a group whose global message has proven them to be the prophets of rage. You're quite hostile. I got a right to be hostile. Man, my people been persecuted. What's up? This is Elliot Einhorn. Welcome to the Talk House Podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of Talk House Film. Listeners, I am absolutely thrilled to be able to tell you that our guests on today's episode are the one, the only, Chuck D of Public Enemy. And Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. You just heard a clip of Public Enemy's song, Prophets of Rage. That's also the name of the new band that Chuck D and Tom Morello have with Rage Against the Machines, Tim Comerford and Brad Wilk, along with Public Enemy's DJ Lord, and of course, the one and only Cypress Hill's Be Real. These guys have just released their first record, and, and it's very cool that two of these giants of, I mean, basically protest music have come together, particularly at a time like this when it's so important that in politics, in, in culture, and in music, in film, that, that people really speak truth to, to power. Right, Nick. Public Enemy, Rage Against the Machine, these are two bands that changed the game. It's amazing that coming with such politicized messages, they sold double-digit millions of records. Now, Public Enemy, of course, throughout the 80s and 90s, released albums full of hard-hitting social commentary and political discourse. Their backup dancers were the security of the first world who carried fake Uzis. The band wrote Fight the Power for Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And of course, 911 is a joke was a huge wake-up call for America. And of course, with, with Rage, like when I was first really becoming aware of music in the 90s, they were one of the really huge bands, not only like an incredible sort of hard rock band, but the subjects that they were talking about in their music, you know, in a really uncompromising way, I think really shifted the way that a lot of, of young people were thinking. Let's listen to a clip from Killing in the Name of. Still hits hard decades later. Rage Against the Machine's rhythm section, Tom Morello, Tim Comerford, and Brad Wilk also went on to form Audio Slave. Which was, of course, led by Chris Cornell. R.I.P. Yeah, such a, such a sad loss earlier this year. Audio Slave were not a political band, so at the same time, Tom Morello started performing and releasing his own solo music as the Night Watchman. And I believe that you and he actually shared a stage together a couple of years back. We did, we did. I was not heavily involved with Occupy Wall Street, but I supported a lot of what they did. And Tom and I played a big rally at Union Square playing Woody Guthrie songs. That's very, very cool. And it sort of ties back to, to what we're talking about. The legacy of, of Woody Guthrie and of protest music generally continues through... Public Enemy, through Rage, and now through Prophets of Rage. Right, and the guys talk about that here in the talk, about protest music from the 40s and 50s onward. They also get into why new groups are afraid to be overtly political. Absolutely. I think there's a fear now just of, of losing your base, of saying something that's going to alienate people. Yep. You know, yep. and, and Rage were always this band who, who really were ultra-principled in the way they approach things. And, the, and a great example of that is the way they handle the situation around the video that they made for Freedom and wrangling with MTV around the, you know, Viacom censorship. That's a, a really, really great story and a really entertaining 
funny one that, that Tom tells in the talk. The guys also talk about the democratization of music via technology, the uh, many pros and occasional cons. Right, and, and Chuck D is somebody who I feel like has always been at the forefront of that conversation around digital music, around piracy, and, and you know, he's always like just this super enlightened perspective. Well, and Nick, these guys are still as pissed as they ever were. Check out some of the song titles from this Prophets of Rage record. The Counteroffensive, Strength in Numbers, Hands Up. And here, check this one out. This is Radical Eyes. And now, in conversation for the TalkHouse podcast, Tom Morello and Chuck D. Let's get inside your head. Why don't you take these meds? What I'm conveying, mind the KMO blood gets shed. You can witness all the I'm Tom Morello. I'm here with Chuck D. We are members of a band called Prophets of Rage. And we have come to you today to talk about music and politics and our history dealing with music and politics, stuff like that. A lot of people are afraid of that, Tom. They are. And they should be, if it's done right. Oh, well, even musicians are afraid to step into that. Well, it exactly. has to be done right. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> They're afraid to do it right. All right, so why don't we, Chuck, why don't we start with you? What, what, what was the first, like, protest music that got your attention? Well, I was, I was in first grade. I had to recognize Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm. As we were singing Puff the Magic Dragon, didn't know what it meant. But we also knew that they would do other songs, too. As, and I heard about that. My mother played a lot of music from uh, Mary McKeever, uh, Harry Belafonte, uh, Motown Stacks Atlantic Household. So music was that extra voice in the house during the turbulent 60s, where you had the assassination of a president. You had a, a war in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, that no one could understand. You, you had a situation where um, your, your so-called person that you looked up to and heard as the, the person to represent your race, which when I grew when I, on my birth certificate it was Negro, and then we were colored, and it was a civil rights act when I was five. And then by the end of that decade, black was beautiful all of a sudden. But before we got there, the person we kind of listened to and looked up to, he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And the president's, you know, brother, who also was in the government, running for the president, he was assassinated. So after a bunch of these assassinations, and even Malcolm X, who my uncle just followed and brought into the household, he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. So with war and all these assassinations, and the music speaking out of what was going on, you would have to be, and, and I'm, I'm not saying this in, in a... Um, in a derogatory way, you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to know, you know, what was going on. And you would have, if I have no music, if I have music in the house, it, it informed you beyond the news station. So it was there minute one because it's what my parents listened to. They yeah. listened to the musicians. My mom played a lot of records. A lot of records were in the house, but not just playing them, but talking about them. And then going to school and finding out that music was in the first school systems that I... Uh, you know, went to, and like I said, the Peter, Paul, and Mary, they, we had to sing their songs all the time, and Woody mm -hmm. Guthrie songs all the time as first and second graders. Mm. So 
that it, that was ingrained in me. By the time 1970 came, it was already in me. And for some reason, they didn't kill presidents anymore in the United States or, you know, black leaders who were up front and the war was over and people went on to these other different tangents. But it is already embedded in me that that music spoke to us first. Hmm. I had, my experience was I had a political household, but not a musically political household. Mm. So, like, my mom was a, a civil rights activist, uh, and uh, my father, who did not live in the home, was involved in Kenya's independence struggle against the... Uh, British colonialism, but the music in our household was like The Temptations and it was stuff like that and uh, some symphony music. And then I discovered hard rock and heavy metal on my own, which was very non-political, but I loved the visceral aggression of it. And so it wasn't until my you know sophomore, junior year of high school where I was introduced to a band called The Clash. Mm. Someone brought in the London Calling record to school and I saw the cover of it where the guy's like smashing the bass on the cover. I thought, this must be an excellent heavy metal album because look, there's violence on the cover. And I, when I first listened to it, I was very surprised that it was not as, you know, riff-tastic as ACDC or, or, or Sabbath. Um, but I was very surpri also surprised that the lyrical content resonated with me right. in a way that none of the metal albums had. So, so explaining it to your mom was quite a revolutionary assumption. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my mom was, she was, she, you know, I used to, my poor mom, long-suffering mom, she was uh, made to like, you have to learn the name of the guys in Kiss because I don't have any siblings, so you have to learn them too. The poor, <laughs> the poor lady, like, I think that one's Paul. No, mom, that's Peter. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but then I discovered, you know, the, the, that opened sort of the door to punk rock and, and music that that lyrically I could relate to and, and also felt like it was a window um, into a world, like an honest presentation of world events, which I did not feel I was getting in my high school. I did not feel I was getting on news broadcasts. But Joe Strummer and then Chuck D were, were, were a, 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 an information source combined with a beautiful and rocking soundtrack that made me think, ah, there is a world of ideas beyond those that are presented in the small suburb where I grew up. Wow. Yeah. I, I always liked looking at the world book year, uh, and the, the, the year end in the world book. I always, in a weird way, would go to the obituary section first because if they're covering this person since he died, that must've been, he must've did some you know, incredible something. stuff, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> Must have done something. It would be the first, and then I would go to baseball, and then, but the world book was was important. Every year had this had this explanation of what went on before, and that actually helped me, you know, kind of chronicleize songs later on in the same similar way. But if we're, if we're talking about sort of like sort of the history of uh, American protest music, I think, and how it's changed. I think there's there's one element that has never changed. And that is that people in whatever their vocation are, whether they're musicians or journalists or carpenters, that have a conscience that feel that there's, there is injustice in the world, some percentage of them are going to fight back. Right. Some of them are going to act up in their line of work, whether it's through the carpenters union, whether it's through some student demonstrations, or whether it's at concerts and in and in studios. Um, and so I believe those are all kind of in, in the world in the world of music, those are all links, you know, sort of in folk music they talk about there's like there's links in the chain. So from the from the uh, uh, 
chain prison chain gangs of Louisiana through the music of Woody Guthrie into the Pete Seegers, Phil Oaks, Bob Dylan's, um, and then into the you know the, the the punk rock era, the Sex Pistols and the Clash, then Public Enemy. Then you've got the System of a Downs and the Rage Against the Machines, uh, and the countless artists who do not chart but are making music that's impactful at thousands of demonstrations around the world over the course of decades. But that's one thing that doesn't change. Uh, one thing that has changed, certainly, you know, in our lifetime, and I, the first Rage record came out, I think, 26 years ago, mm-hmm. um, is kind of the, 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 the digital realm and the world of social media. Um, it's provide, in my view, it's provided a democratizing aspect to, to music. It used to be you had to get a record deal in order to, Right. have a song that was going to be heard by people or, or or you would do a, it would be a DIY thing where you'd sell 45s out the back of the truck and there was a ceiling to that that was known right. you know right. now you me and the person walking by right now can have this a Facebook page like Metallica does right. we can make a record with all of the digital competence that the Beatles made the white album with on our phone, right? right? And we can make a movie or a video, you know, with stuff that we've got in this room that can be as sort of visually and sonically present as anything that's been made before. So that, I think, throws the doors wide to the democratization of making music, of making protest music. It also dilutes the, the... uh, the audience for such things, right. because the, the 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 downside of sort of the major labels was that they had a very small funnel that was decided by people often unqualified to do so mm-hmm. who the world was going to hear. Right now, the world gets to hear everything, um, but occasionally, what came through that funnel was U two, Public Enemy, Rage Against the Machine, that made everyone from P- you know from Pittsburgh to the Philippines know about your band, be able to decide what they thought about the content of it. Now, we, we're kind of lost in this, this shrapnel of a million bands, a million groups, a million artists, a million ideas. Hopefully you find one that you like. So we've been fortunate in our band, Prophets of Rage, that we still are drafting on kind of the, the histories of our bands in order to have an audience. And we've, Chuck and I have played in front of two and a half million people in the year that we've been a band together um, with a message that is, that is undiluted yeah. from when our, we made our first record. Well, I ask you a simple question. I, I think I, I explained a little bit that when I was in the school systems in New York, you know, in the 60s, we did hear about, you know, the poets, and we did learn something about Joe Hill and sure. Judy Guthrie. And we did, you know, look at music programs that would start you off with the elementary beginnings of what an instrument did and, mm-hmm. and how to play it. Yeah, that's not I mean, there. That, yeah, yeah. When did you feel that that, that sort of was a, a, did the government kind of like have something to do or, or was a state curriculum or counties explaining that, look, we ain't got no money. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing it's is going to go of, is just this art. Exactly, that's just a matter of priorities. I mean, they're, they're not cutting back on aircraft carriers. They're cutting back on, you know, uh, guitars and bongos for preschoolers. <laughs> you know, I think there's a, there's a, uh, well, hell, uh, the school ain't cutting back on the basketball team either. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's just that's clearly just a matter of societal priorities, which I think is dramatically askew. But the the good news is that now, like, nobody wants to be a guitar player anymore. Everybody wants to be a DJ, and you can be a DJ on your phone. You know what I mean? Now you have to have a. Uh, a, a conscience and an awareness that there is injustice in the world and a fire in your belly to do something about it, but you can act. And one thing that we're seeing, I don't know when this program's going to come out, but in the last week or so, globally, people standing up against the rise of racism and the rise of right. immigrant bashing and the rise of fascism. And that is something that is certainly fueled by 
you know, so by digital media. And one thing that travels on that digital media is music. And music, I think, it's certainly in the United States, there's never been a successful social movement that has not had a great soundtrack. Right. And in 2017, there is a domestic and global resistance that requires some artists, one artist, 15 art, whatever. I know Prophets of Rage, we've already, ra we've already volunteered for the job. We're going to hold the space till somebody else shows up. But, uh, but so is there a fear there? Is, a f is there a fear by, other artists. by artists? Uh, and where does this fear come from? Uh, uh, like I say, if they, if they even have, if they have no label and no management, why yeah. is it this? this well, I, I can explain fear. that. I mean, the, anytime I post anything on my, so whether it's a tweet or whether it's an Instagram that, tangentially talks about Trump or neo-Nazis, you know, you'll be, people will vehemently, like, <laughs> like people will not be your fan. I mean, I know, I know on our current record, there are some stations in the red states that will not play a Prophets of Rage song because of the lyrical content. And so you have to be someone that just goes, I don't fucking care. This is what I believe in. Right. I'm going to do that. But in an age where it's a near impossibility to make a living as a musician, people do that calculation. Like, right. do I want to alienate 40 to 55% of a potential audience by taking a political stand and maybe not have a career in the career in quotes in the music industry? Or do I say what I believe and let the chips fall where they may? We've always let the chips fall where they may, but I understand that kind of societal pressure to, um, to water it down. Well, well you know, there, there, Make there, there has to be people like us that be able to encourage a person that, that loves music and wants to make music, that they can make some sort That's of right. living off of making music. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not, you know, everybody's not going to ride around in PJs and limos yeah. and stuff yeah, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. but yeah. the society has to be able to uphold someone who wants to be able to be a musician. A musician yeah. is necessary. You yeah. know, like, I think it's necessary for a person to learn how to play a guitar. Chords are real. Chords mm -hmm. are the vibration of, of, of life and all the, I mean, they receive chords yeah. for things that go beyond us yeah. having tangible explanations. You know, it's like, wow, I feel good because the way that this person played, mm -hmm. even as a harp or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I just think that this support of, of encouraging musicians that they could be okay when they get a sense of themselves can also make them fearless in saying things that people need. And mm -hmm. it, come, it will come around, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I don't know if that's utopian, but, it, but somebody has to say something because at the end of the day, having corporations having a major say on whether a person's going to be a musician or not, I mean, that can't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the good news is people are going to be musicians, but the access to the music and the, you know, one of the, one of the programs that Prophets of Rage has been involved in is Jail Guitar Doors, which is uh, in the UK run by Billy Bragg. Domestically, it's run by Wayne Kramer and his wife, Margaret. And what they do uh, in what we've helped provide them to do in small measure is provide instruments, guitars for inmates in prisons across the United States. And it has dramatically impacted the recidivism rate as a way to you know, uh, mentally rehab from the things that have gone on in your life and a way to express yourself that may not be via crime or violence. Um, and it's been a tangible societal benefit to guitars and to, and to music that is undervalued by the society at large. It takes like a couple of you know, nonprofit organizations to do it. Um, what we do, you know, in our in our line of work, the message is in the mosh pit. And first and foremost, as a band, being one of the few uh, explicitly political bands, you know, that are granted interviews on fine podcasts like yourself. You know, much of our much of our talk is about the politics of it. But first and foremost, you had better be a great 
fucking band or you're not going to get anybody's attention. <laughs> Public Enemy was, you know, Chuck D did 100 interviews and 99 of those interviews were about the politics of Public Enemy. I, as a member of Rage Against the Machine, Prophets of Rage and The Night Watchman, I've done 10,000 interviews and most of them are about politics. But you, no one's going to interview me, no one's going to interview him unless we've made records that are rocking fools senseless, unless we've played shows that demonstrate clearly beyond any shadow of a doubt that the message is first and foremost in the mosh pit. Yeah. And I, I also add, well, add to that the saying that the fact that we're in um, a multimedia millennial uh, generation of access to all these uh, sight, sounds, stories, and styles, the visuals are very important. Um, the sight and sound of a, of a, a video and the accessibility to be able to create something which doesn't, you know, exceed your recording budget. <laughs> you yeah. Because in the past, you yeah. did something and people would say, well, yeah, this video would actually cost you this to, to convey this message. And you were kind of like kowtowed into it. And you're like, well, you're saying the only way we could get this thing across is that the budget that we got for this is this is eight times the size of the budget we got to record this album yeah. for this one clip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you're going to tell us to change it back because yeah. MTV told us to oh, take, blur oh, something out? Oh. Well, what kind of game is this? That was and so I'm, crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that Tell me now. something we got edited for, for listeners who might be younger, might not remember this game. There was a thing called MTV once back in the day. And what it did was it broke bands. And if MTV played your video a lot, you would go from being a band that sold no records to potentially being a band that sold three million records right. during the summer. Right. So it was not an unimportant thing right. in a musician's career. However, there was an evil... <laughs> hooded advisory board at the company Viacom that uh, no one ever knew their name. Five people. But <laughs> So that what they would do was they would look at your video and then you'd wait to get notes back from Viacom who was going to make bizarre judgments on yours. So what, I, what was your most kind of bizarre judgment? Blurring a logo. Blurring a logo. Oh, oh. man. Oh, a hat. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it could have been anything. Like, I, yeah. I had something on my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. okay. they thought they are going to have to pay the And the, then the later, on, or... the, the later on, the game was like, oh, you know what? You, you delivered it, but you got to have closed caption. Yeah. And how much is closed caption going to cost? Oh, maybe like an extra $37,000. Yeah. <laughs> The game, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. so the, the, the point. Of that, you say your point. And uh, yeah. uh, what was the worst that happened? Well, we, and we had a number of things, and we had, would make these videos, and they were just like the most ridiculous stuff. That you know, it wasn't even like it was like a one was a horse falling over, and one was something that might have been viewed as a gun, and one I had like the name of like my town on the back of a jacket, and that might I don't know might have caused offense to a rival town. Oh, but here's how we circ we circumvented them. For, this was the very first Rage Against the Machine video. Now. Rage was a band that um, was very popular in Europe before we were popular in the United States, principally because there were different censorship standards and we could have songs on the radio and songs on MTV that they could not have here right. because we refused to edit the lyrical content. We were all very high-minded about that at the time. So uh, finally, the record company here is losing their mind because they... You know, they're being outsold by Belgium. And, you know, and, and they're just, everyone's about to lose their jobs in the fourth quarter if they can't sell some Rage records. So the record company suggests to the band, who's very difficult, we would like to give you a budget to make a video for the song Freedom on your record. And they pointed out in Freedom, there's no chorus to the song. It's six and a half minutes long. And we suggest, suggestion came from the record company, that the video be about Leonard Peltier and we all work to get him out of jail together. Like, they were daring, like, say no to that. 
say, try to sync. We're like, yes, we'll do that video. So we do the video, we spend the money on it. It's all about Lent. It's a great, go to YouTube, run right now. It's a great video. But the final cut comes in and we're about to send it to Viacom. I'm sitting in the back of the tour bus with Michael Goldstone, our A&R guy. And we watch the video. I'm like, oh no. He's like, what? I'm like, oh no. He's like, what do you mean, oh no? Like, there's a bad word in it. And it's like, there's, a, there's no bad word. We check the lyrics. Like, no, no, it's not in the lyrics. It's, it's, an, it's an ad lib where Zach says, bring that shit in. And no one heard it and no one listened to it. And it's like locked into the MTV hot spot as all Viacom has to do is say, okay. I'm like, well, that's a problem, dude, but I've got a solution. This is what you're going to do. You're going to tell Viacom that he's not saying bring that shit in, you're gonna tell him that shatine is the Aztec word for freedom. And he's saying, bring that shatine, bring the freedom, right. bring the freedom. And Michael's like, is that true? I was like, of course it's not true. <laughs> Just gonna tell him that. We're gonna get it on the friggin' TV. And we did and we became a hugely popular band. Wow. That's big. <laughs> That's it, all, it all worked out. That's you know, because you're married, as a, a musician, you're married to your art. You, I mean, you give birth to it. I mean, they're part of you. Sure. When you have a job, it's easy for you to kind of like, you know, distance yourself from it or engage with it. Mm -hmm. and, and so the artist has to have a stance that says, look, we believe in this. And when that team around it, when they believe in it, you know, and I think with a lot of instances like that over the years, artists have been kind of like gun shy, no pun intended, to saying, well, I don't want to come out and, 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 and say this because I don't know if it's going to be the end of my career. Mm -hmm. And this is permeated all the way down to the to the YouTube artists that might want to get signed. To sign the what? Sure. It beats the hell out of me. Yeah, and I yeah, tell yeah. them like, sign the what? It's nothing out there to get signed to. Mm -hmm. Be you and deliver your messages. And I just think that now, since the freedom of somebody being able to cut and edit and shoot on their phone and also match something that they might say audibly mm -hmm. is, a, is a good opportunity for other people to be fearless mm -hmm. in the saying what needs to be said, yeah. you know? Uh, I don't think there's an industry that's gonna wanna be able to know that they have the super job of taking a thousand artists saying incredible things yes. because they want their job to be easier and right, they take right. weekends off right, and stuff right, like that. I'm like, right. uh, we don't, I don't take weekends off. This is like 24 hours, seven days a week, this is the point of view. This is the song. And I got, and then wherever I go, it's like a badge on my face, like a tattoo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is, and, and this is what, um, you know, Prophets of Rage, you know, when we decide to do a song, we wear the song. We have to wear it. I mean, we're, and we're going to go around with the visuals that come out and, and everything else that comes, the stories that come along with these points of view. And we can't duck and dodge it. It's going to be stuck to us for life. No hatred. changed through the uh, years for us as as radical musicians. Now when I um, heard that clash record long ago, um, I was I immediately went to my guitar and I wrote a song called Salvador Death Squad Blues. That was sort of my introductory 
you know, political political jam. And the the it, it speaks to the point of like the lesson of all of you artists and aspiring artists and musicians out there. The, there's a lesson of example. And for me, the Clash was an example that they were people that it really felt like while they made great music, it felt like it wasn't career first. Right. It felt like they authentically meant everything that they were saying and let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. And encouraged me in my high school to take a principal stand, you know, in my small high school in Illinois, in my small band, to make a principal stand. And then, I mean, and that is just sort of echoed through the decades of my life. And I run into people every day that have seen some work of mine that may encourage them to some social justice fervor. And so whether you're, you know, in line at the KFC and you hear someone make a racist comment, you stand up against it. Right. Whether you're in a band and you've got uh, some convictions about, uh, the you know the rally the violence in Charlottesville write a song about it and not only is it sort of a, a cathartic experience but people will witness your courage and the and the echoes of of that courage can resonate in ways you have no idea what's going to happen. That's why people initially or inherently they they they, they wasn't distant from authority because they said look if I'm in the neighborhood I want to be feel like I'm protected. Mm -hmm. Is to is, it wasn't until that was breached by by years of incidents that just like come on now, and, and so you know I think people want to have people that stand up or situations that stand up for them where they might not have the voice, mm -hmm. or they might not ever have the voice. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people naturally are shy, sure, and 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 today they have an answer for a person that's shy that you can actually live through your avatar mm -hmm. on social media. Mm -hmm and not have to deal with the right. actuality of breaking the ice right. by being right. shy. And I think, you know, these gadgets kind of cover that up. Mm -hmm. But musicians can kind of also help out by helping somebody break the ice. Yeah, it certainly can. Because, because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a bit of a mole. It's a, you know, certainly the music of Rage Against the Machine and also with Prophets of Rage, first and foremost, you try to be a great rock and roll band. Right. You got to be a great rock and roll band. You got to like kick people's ass. You got to learn how to play guitars. Well, you got, yeah, <laughs> nobody's in, every, nobody, everybody's on the ones and twos right now, but that, whatever, and whatever your instrument is. Yeah, like, let, let me tell you, the ones and twos got guitars on them, <laughs> on them records. Well, be great at it because otherwise you're not going to get anybody's attention to begin with. And that, that um, you know, like for me, it's like I had the, I had the twin passions of uh, being a musician. And so I did my 10,000 hours on that, but I, and I felt like I didn't really choose that. That kind of chose me. And so I'm stuck being a guitar player. How then do I weave my ideas and my convictions into what I do? And that's where The Clash and Public Enemy provided like a route. Like I can still like Kiss and I can still like Black Sabbath. Maybe some of those riffs, mm -hmm. you know, what if I bent those into my thoughts about Central American death squads? You know, like that's, you know, and then Rage Against the Machine was the result of that. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of those sounds are, are bent. Yeah. into making those recordings yeah. off recordings. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Another thing, too, about music, like one thing that is very, that is, uh, I think, uh, not often commented upon is the political nature of music, yeah. leaving lyrics outside of mm -hmm. it. And I always thought that the case, you can, like, for example, I believe that the saxophone playing of John Coltrane or of Charlie Parker is revolutionary. Here's why. One is because it challenged the, no the conventions and the norms of the genre. And any time you outflank the conventions of a time or of a thing, it begs the question, could we challenge the conventions of other things? Right, right. If we can do it in saxophone, could we do it in 
race relations. Right. You know, like uh, if we can do it with uh, electric guitar, can we do it with poverty? Like right. the things that have always existed in this way need not only exist in this way. And that's what I think the revolutionary musical production of Public Enemy suggested. Mm -hmm. Perhaps some of the music of Rage Against the Machine, sort of the combining of um, sort of the uh, multi-ethnic band with multi-genre well, music gotta, you gotta suggested. You got an understanding of the basics in order to attack the basics. Mm -hmm. You know, you just can't come in there like, I don't agree with anything. I'm yeah, coming yeah. to destroy it. Yeah, you, have to, yeah. you have to have some reverence for yeah. the basics to go in and say, well, this is wrong what I feel about the basics, mm -hmm. but I do get that the basics need to be understood. Right, right. You know, well, so. like, I mean, I think you know, Elvis's hips were political. Oh, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. like, like those hip thrusts challenged the world. And the, <laughs> and the technology that sure. refused to go lower than the belt. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you felt the culture of struggle in that. You know, Woody Guthrie's guitar, I think, is very timely. This machine kills fascists. Right. You know, the idea that, that a six-string instrument was a weapon for defeating Nazism is an idea we perhaps should bring back. Well, are you the only guy that actually still has writing on his guitar while he plays? I don't know. I don't really check Google Images, but I, we could check. I'm sure somebody else. Is that, yeah. sure I somebody mean, for me, I was thought the guitar it was a wasted space, if not a signboard. People are like, I love my beautiful Les Paul guitar. <laughs> I love the orange burst. And I'm like, I. What if you just scrawl something angry on there? <laughs> that, that, that's the Tom Morello signature. It's like he's, you know, people await to see you know, what he might say on the face of his guitar, what he might scratch in, you know? He's giving hand third base signal signs. It's like the third base coach is like, does he take the pitch or what? What's <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious about where, where we're at. Third base coach signs. Yeah, 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 where we're at. <laughs> the world is not going to change itself. That, my friends, is up to you. And we can... Definitely look for another guitarist that puts messages on their guitar. At number two. Yes, please submit your guitars with your scrawled situationist slogans on them. <laughs> Thank you very much for having us. Peace. Chuck, Tom, thank you very much for being with us. Listeners, catch Profits of Rage touring across America through the rest of the year. Of course, this has been the latest in an ongoing series of, of political conversations we've had on the Talkcast podcast. Most recently, we had Seth Meyers in conversation with Senator Al Franken. We also had Talib Kweli talking with Patterson Hood of Drive-By Truckers. For these and all other Talkcast podcast episodes, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you find your podcast. Wherever fine podcasts are served. While you're there, rate and review. Every time you do, it helps someone else find the podcast. Absolutely. Of course, also go check us out on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where we now have full video episodes recorded at the flagship Sono store, including the likes of David Cross with Gene Gray and the Strokes' Fab Moretti, Kyle Mooney talking with Taryn Killam, and in our new collaboration with Food Republic, ASAP Ferg and Chef Andrew Carmelini. Absolutely. Of course, don't forget that TalkHouse.com is the best place to go read daily pieces by musicians and filmmakers writing about the art that they make, the art that inspires them, their creative world. Behind the boards, we have our mixing engineer and co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi. And this episode was recorded by Susan Vallett. Until next time, I'm Nick Dawson. I'm Ellie Einhorn. We'll see you then. Hey.